Reviewers and critics are increasingly wearied by the tide of target-marketed fiction flooding their desks. The international world of books is in many respects as ruthlessly commercial as that of pop or mainstream cinema. Expect any day now the arrival of pen stars, where six comely young people are locked away and coached towards the production of a series of best-selling novels. The proliferation of new publications alone makes it hard to spot a jewel in their midst. Yet a novel published quietly in December has met with unanimous acclaim from the battle-weary scribes of the book pages. He has created a novel that lives and breathes as convincingly as the characters who inhabit it, said the Irish Times. This great and moving novel, which looks so quiet and provincial, opens out through its small frame to our most troubling and essential questions, said the Observer. What his fiction achieves is a kind of perfection, said the Independent. What these indicate is the belief of many that they may face the rising sun is the supreme achievement of a very modest man. It is with special pleasure that we welcome tonight Mr John McGarren. Now, your novels seem to be populated with widowers, and the assumption would be that this is because of the death of your mother when you were very young. What were and what are the abiding legacies for you of, of, of her death in terms of your work? I don't know. Um, I mean, sometimes I think uh, that I might... Um, in many, I think there are many accidents along the way. Is I certainly think it was the first time I was in love, and uh, <clears throat> that world... Uh, was taken away and sometimes I often think um, if um, the long and complicated journey of writing isn't a simple instinct to try to recover uh, that lost world uh, but I'm not certain. Your literary development has a little bit at least in common with another great Midland poet and uh, bard and that's Thurlock O'Carrollan because you benefited, he was fostered out to a, a family. You benefited from the generosity of another family, didn't you? Uh, yes. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have been a writer without the Moronis. They were a Protestant family. They were incredibly charming. They had a great 19th century library. Old Willie um, was a beekeeper. He used to always talk about... Um, uh, he was very fond of quoting Plato and St. Ambrose. He called Plato the Athenian bee. The, the good and the wise because his words glowed with the sweetness of honey. Uh, and he cared about nothing in the world but his bees. They were so kind of improvident and uncommercial that, that though they had a rich farmer land, is that they were poor. They used to sell apples. And I was sent to buy apples. By the, we bought them by the bucketful. I remember they were a half crown a bucket. Uh, nobody gave me direction or advice. I mean, I read for nothing but pleasure. I think it's still the best uh, reason to read. And... Um, uh, I read um, all sorts of books, Scott and Dickens and uh, Cowboys, Zane Grey, um, and many, many books about the Rocky Mountains. Uh, uh, some person in that 19th century house must have been fascinated by the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> and I was quite an authority on the Rocky Mountains when I was... <laughs> uh, though I was living in North Roscommon. Uh, I, I wrote first without ever thinking of getting published. Uh, I think I was the first writer I met at that stage. <laughs> uh, uh, and in a way, the writing was an extension of my reading. 
uh, is that I do believe uh, very seriously uh, that there's not a great deal of difference between the artist and the reader. I think each of us has a private world that others cannot see. And it's with that world that we read. And that the difference between the reader and the artist is that the writer is able to dramatise that private world in his head. In a way, all good writing, I think, is suggestions. And it's not finished, and it's not completed until it's taken up by the reader and then completed. For two of the men that you write about, Regan in the barracks and Moran in Amongst Women, their participation in the War of Independence seems to have been absolutely crucial to them because it seems that nothing thereafter was of any significance to them. Would, 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 that be, would that be correct? I think that was very common in that generation, is that they risked their lives, uh, they were young, uh, they had a dream of a different country. Um, I suppose those uh, violent years, um, they were never to live as intensely again. You can see that um, in an important writer like Ernie O'Malley, that almost his, uh, he had a very interesting life afterwards, but it was almost as if um, um, he couldn't write about anything else except um, the war, uh, which he wrote magnificently about in Another Man's Wound. And also that when um, they thought it would be a changed country and nothing was changed much, uh, in fact it might be even a bit worse than it was before. And then they saw that uh, you know, the church and the medical profession took over the New Ireland, and nothing much had changed. And this, I mean, Dublin Castle was gone. But replaced by? By the church and medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Morn in Amongst Women is very upset uh, uh, when his daughter wants to become a doctor. Now, the dark, if we could talk about that. Uh, the barracks introduced you to the Irish reading public. The dark, however, introduced you to the general public in a very painful manner. Um, for those of us, or for those who don't remember what it was about that book, which so upset so many people, the Catholic authorities, Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, what was it about the book that they disliked so intensely? I had nothing but contempt for the censorship board. And um, I mean, most of the books that the band, uh, like most books published, weren't worth reading. And, and those that were worth reading could be easily found and quickly passed around. And that there is no uh, taste um, as sweet as that of forbidden fruit. So in that sense, the censorship board always kind of defeats itself. Uh, but I, f I, I always felt badly about getting mixed up with, the, up with it. Uh, uh, and I actually thought that if I had written a novel better, they mightn't have noticed it. <laughs> uh, um, and um, and uh, I thought that, uh, I mean, there was a time, that time, there was a, it's different now, is that it was said that if you're an Irish writer, um, that you wanted to go abroad, uh, that you should go, have to go to Paris because of the great examples of Beckett and Joyce and people like that. Uh, I always thought that it would be ridiculous for, say, you couldn't imagine a, a French writer having to go abroad to be a French writer, or an English writer like Larkin or Waugh having to go abroad to be an English writer. I said we could write as badly in Ireland as anywhere else. <laughs> um, and um, I was a bit ashamed. And in that sense, I was the first, belonged to the first generation to be born into this country. It was our country now, is we wanted to make it as good as we could. We couldn't blame anybody else. 
And I thought that just with our censorship board and all those kind of, we were making bloody fools out of ourselves. And I was, I was kind of ashamed. Was there a bit of divilment in then writing a book or in calling a book the pornographer, albeit a decade and a half after the dark controversy? Was there a little bit of sort of, uh, uh, well, irony there, did you think? Or were you attempting, you aiming at that? No, uh, maybe unconsciously, um, but uh, um, it was a, an attempt to um, uh, write about uh, sexuality, which is probably impossible anyhow. Um, and um, I see pornography as the opposite um, of um, human sexuality. In what sense? Well, uh, pornography is uh, heartless, uh, it's mechanical, it's inhuman in a way, it's, uh, and um, everything um, goes right in it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and in that sense, um, it's a very old technique as well, is that um, if you want to look at the sun, um, you know, look at the shade, and you can actually tell the sun better by its progress in the shade than you can looking up at the sky. And actually, I hadn't read pornography until I came to write the pornographer, uh, and I found uh, most of it was rather badly written. The pornographer is an urban book, and it has an urban feel to it, hasn't it? To say it's an urban activity anyhow, don't you? You're going to read us an extract from the, uh, the, from the pornographer. The reason I picked this up, because in a way it leads into the, those visits in that they may face the rising sun. It uh, deals with an in institution called Sunday Visiting. And... Um, uh, in a way, the telephone has done away with it, but I think that anything deep in human nature always takes some other shape. I had now visited, in the sense of doing something in terms of something else, my aunt so often and so regularly in the hospital, that the visits had come to resemble those she was so well used to among relatives on Sundays in the country. Cars pull up outside. Apologies and cautious smiles ease themselves out of front seats. A child slams a back door. Having first discerned who has landed from the cover of the back of the living room, smiles of surprise and delight are wreathed into shape on the doorstep of the porch. Little runs and thrills and pats and chortles go to answer one another till all hesitant, discordant notes are lost in the sweet medley of hypocrisy. <laughs> Tea is made. <laughs> the visit ends as it began, relief breaking through the trills of thanks and promises and small, playful scolds. And now, be sure and don't let it be as long until you come again. <laughs> we'll think bad of you. Now it's your turn to visit us next time. You've been just promising for far too long. And then each family settles down to a solid hour of criticism of the other. <laughs> the boring visit ended. It is the way we define and reassert ourselves, 
rejecting those foreign bodies as we sharpen and restore our sense of self. <laughs> I want to talk briefly about amongst women. It strikes me that the children in a lot of your books, if not all your books, show an amazing tolerance of domineering parents or domineering fathers, perhaps. Would that be fair? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think tolerance is the word. I mean, if you're a child, you're powerless and you have no choice. Yes, but then subsequently... We're talking, I'm talking about the children when they, become, become, when they become adults, that there is still some sort of respect, some sort of love almost, no matter how crushed that love has become. Well, I think that um, the parents are your first people, uh, and in a way you can never dispense with them. No matter how they treat you? I think it's very difficult. The representation of amongst women on screen... I gather, I mean, I may be wrong in this, I gather you've never seen it. No, I didn't see it. I saw the promotional uh, video and I saw that they uh, had done a good job. Uh, uh, and I was friendly with Tony Doyle when um, uh, the book was uh, uh, first published. Uh, he and I carved it up for book at bedtime and, and um, at BBC. And when it was opened, um, uh, I was reading at Foils in London. There weren't many people there. And Tony and I went across the road um, and had a drink afterwards. And uh, he had no idea, and I had no idea, that it would uh, become such a success then. And um, I told him that uh, I wasn't going to look at it. And he didn't mind. Uh, and uh, you know, I was very sorry when he died. We were mm. friends. Um, but, um, and the reason I did, didn't is that I th um, I've written for television. And it's very different writing from writing for novels. I mean, is that the most important person in the movies and TV is the director, because he picks the images. I mean, I think in the sense of writing, uh, the image is the most important uh, single thing in writing. I mean, is that you can pick the images, whether it's a wedding ring or a, a shoe or whatever, that moves us uh, out of the many images that clutter up reality. And a writer has a different function there. And I actually you know, was enormously pleased that they made it because in that sense I thought of it as another reading. And uh, I mean, every person would read it differently and I'd have a very different idea of it. So um, I, I would probably be the worst person to look at. And so, so I didn't look at it. I want to finish by coming back to That They May Face the Rising Sun. And there's a character in it, John Quinn, <laughs> I can hear a hub, a reaction in the audience. He is a womanizing, self-centered, on a couple of occasions, brutal individual who is effectively guilty of, uh, of marital rape. In another novel, he might have been uh, a tyrannical character. He might have been a Regan, he might have been a Morn. In, in this novel, he's almost a, a sympathetic character. Why is that? Well, I think, um, I mean, since they're stuck with him, uh, they have to put up with him. Uh, so they have to do the best they can. And in a way, um, since he is so outrageous and since these gentle manners that the people have uh, are fairly strict, uh, to a certain extent, he restores the moral order. Is he somebody who is perhaps more disapproved of by women than by men? 
I think he was, uh, he, in the novel, the, the community of the novel generally disapprove of him. Uh, but uh, since he breaks the rules, I mean, he actually is a great source of um, conversation. And um, since it questions uh, the normal morality is that sexuality is no sin, it's just a healthy sign. And, um, but, it's, um, but it's almost as if um, he lacks a moral sense. So to a certain extent, I mean, they have to be very wary of him for their own safety. But, um, and they know him, so in that sense they can't harm them. But it's almost to a certain extent as if in the, the moral climate of the novel is that they're dealing with somebody um, who is blind, that he's blind to the normal laws. There's also an interesting subtext of, of male communication or non-communication. Is there a sense in which you are saying in the novel that perhaps men communicate far better non-verbally? I mean, there are two characters, the Shah and Frank, who, who, uh, who the Shah owns the shop, or a shop, and then hands it over or sells it to, to Frank. There's no communication between... It's, it's, it's very funny, but there's absolutely no communication between them at all. Um, I mean, that's true. Uh, Rutledge does say to uh, the Shah, when the, uh, when the whole business has um, uh, been concluded, uh, um, though they have been working together you know, very satisfactorily for years without saying a word to one another, he <coughs> says, uh, anyhow, the two of you, he says, aren't going to kill one another with talk. <laughs> uh, and the Shah doesn't blink an eyelid, and he says, uh, uh, you could be taking your life into your hands. Uh, <laughs> So that, in that sense, words were dangerous. Okay. One of the, the other characters in the novel, the main characters, I think, in the novel, is nature itself. Is there a touch of the Wordsworth about you? Are you a bit of a pantheist? <laughs> I don't think he'd do down in Leitrim. <laughs> <laughs> no, I admire Wordsworth enormously. I think he's a great writer. Um, I remember um, the man that gave me my first um, real job, Donald Gordon, in the University of Reading after I was sacked. Uh, uh, I was uh, enthusing about Yeats at the time, and I said he must have been, Yeats must have been the greatest um, um, poet since um, uh, Shakespeare. And um, Professor Gordon said very sternly to me, he said, uh, you must pause at Wordsworth. You must certainly pause at Wordsworth. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, is the, is, I, mean I think uh, the place we live um, is part of our lives and is important. Uh, and I've been always fascinated by water, and in the sense the lake um, is um, the mirror of the lives, and it's also the mirror of the sky uh, that um, we all live under. Finally, there's an elegiac quality about this novel. It's actually an elegiac quality that worries me slightly. Is there a sense in which we should be worried because of the amount of time that it takes for you to write a novel, because of your perfectionism, that this might be the last one? <laughs> well, I'm always hoping it'll be the last one. <laughs> um, but um, um, and I feel like writing again. But what happens? Uh, when one starts a book, um, one never knows what's going to happen. Um, and in fact, um, in a way, I think the writer writes in order to discover something. And I have a feeling that if that tension of discovery wasn't there, um, 
it wouldn't be interesting for the right readers to that they would uh, they would instinctively know that it was just an exercise and and in a way that when you begin something you're actually trying to find out to see something uh, and uh, I mean I'd be very happy not to write again uh, but I I think uh, coming back to happiness again um, I like them a story of Suevo, who was James Joyce's friend. Um, um, he was very witty, and when he was dying, he was in a motor accident. Somebody, some foolish person asked him what he was dying like. Uh, <laughs> isn't that a terrible question? <laughs> and the answer was, um, uh, which delights me always, it's not nearly as bad as writing a novel. <laughs> John McGahern, it's been an absolute pleasure and a total privilege to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.